Again, welcome to Freedom. It's good to have you here today for worship. And let me say to those of you who are watching, joining in online, whether you're doing this live or catching it in archived form later in the week, we really are glad to have you be a part of worship. Uh, it means a lot that you would uh, choose to invest your time tuning in with us. We are today wrapping up a series, uh, just a short uh, four-week series that we've been doing on things Jesus never said. And if you haven't been with us the last three weeks, that may seem like an odd thing to be preaching about. But we understand that the words of Jesus, you know, the red words of Scripture, are so power-packed. Everything that Jesus said is so important for us. But you also have to realize that it's important for us to grasp not only what he said, but what he was careful not to say. Because so many times people love to assume things about Jesus and what surely he would have done or would have said if he had ever addressed this issue. And we want to be really careful that we understand some of the things that Jesus didn't say, particularly as it relates to some issues where we have bought into an idea that's really not biblical. It may look very Western or sound very American or just make good sense to us, but Jesus never said it. So today what we're going to tackle is an, an issue that I think is going to land really, really close to home for most of us. And it's tied to a major misperception that I think many of us have about God. And, and here's what it really is rooted in. We know that God is ultimately, you know, he is father, he is loving, he is so many things, but we also know that he is a righteous judge, right? I mean, the scriptures reveal that. We, we know that Jesus is going to judge all of humanity. And so because he is a righteous judge and because everyone's going to stand before him and everyone's going to be judged, it's easy for us to simply come to the conclusion that what that means in life is, you're going to get what you deserve, right? If God's a righteous judge and if he's a ruler over all the earth, then surely that means you're going to get what you deserve in life for eternity and in your life here on earth. But here's the good news for us this morning. Jesus never said that. And, and that's very good news for us. Now, along those lines, we're going to unpack this today, but as we've done every week. Let me just point out, in relation to that idea, several other things that Jesus never said that really tie to the idea of you get what you deserve. Jesus never said, if you go to church and say your prayers, you'll have an easy life and a beautiful wife. Jesus never said that. Jesus never said, if you tithe, you'll be financially successful and debt-free. He didn't say that. Some sucker on TV may have said that, but Jesus didn't say that. Jesus never said, if you tell the truth, other people won't tell lies about you. Didn't say that. Jesus never said, if you're always faithful and loving to your spouse, they'll always be faithful and love you. He didn't say that. Jesus didn't say, if you eat right and exercise, you'll live to be at least 90 years old and you'll be skinny. He didn't say that. Jesus didn't say, if you drink, smoke, and eat too much, you'll die young and fat. That might be you get what you deserve, but Jesus never said that. The interesting thing is, part of us wants the world to work that way. I mean, isn't that true? Isn't there a part of you that wants people to get what they deserve? For God to always give out what people deserve. But here's the thing that we all share in common. We just don't want it to work that way for us, do we? We want there to be this sense of justice that God's going to give all those other people what they've got coming. And yet, what that creates for us is a very real sense of fear and guilt and shame if you believe that for everybody on earth, God's going to make sure that you get what you deserve. Something deep inside of us, and, and it seems to be almost universal, Something deep inside of us is afraid that that's how it's going to play out. God knows what we've done, and we know what we've done, even if nobody else does. And because of that, and because we believe that if God's a righteous judge, he's got to, at some point down the line, make us get what we deserve, it makes us then live with a sense of guilt 
and fear and shame. And so what we're going to spend time today looking at is what Jesus actually did and didn't say as it relates to guilt and shame and the justice of God. Now, I spent a little time this week, because this is what we're going to be focusing on, doing some research in the Scriptures, but beyond the Scriptures. A lot of you know my undergraduate work was in psychology, so just kind of for fun, I did a good bit of reading this week on just in recent years what the world of psychology has to say about guilt and its effect on our lives. So indulge me for a couple of minutes in all the articles that I read in the different psychology journals. I just gleaned out what I thought were sort of ten of the most interesting things about guilt, where it comes from and what it does in our lives. So none of this is from Scripture. This is just kind of for fun. But see if you can't relate to some of these things and what is just my top ten interesting things about guilt. Number one, researchers say that we experience noticeable feelings of guilt if you average us all together, an average of about five hours a week that we spend just really feeling guilty. That's a lot of time wasted on guilty feelings. But here's the interesting part in that. Number two, women experience guilt and shame at epidemic levels today compared to men. Women experience guilt about four times as much as men. And, and some researchers have come to the conclusion that we as men carry an underdeveloped sense of guilt or accountability for what we do to other people. I thought that was really pretty funny. I was like, I don't know if that was male or female researchers there, but they said women have an overdeveloped sense of responsibility and guilt and men an underdeveloped sense that we don't really care what, what our actions and words do. Number three, growing up in an abusive home greatly increases the likelihood of living with guilt and shame for much of your life. We might imagine all kinds of other outcomes, but guilt and shame are the most likely things to come out of that. Number four, unresolved guilt is like having a snooze alarm in your brain that never shuts off for very long. Any of you bad about hitting the snooze button? You know... It gives you relief for the moment, but in nine or ten minutes, it's going to start again. And unresolved guilt works that way. You can consciously tell yourself, it wasn't my fault, everybody does it, whatever it is that you, you want to. But if you don't truly resolve the guilt, it's just like all you've done is hit the snooze button. It just comes back again and again. Number five, guilty feelings make it hard to think straight. Creativity, productivity, concentration, and efficiency all drop significantly when we have unresolved guilt in our lives. So you're not nearly as good at anything that involves your brain when you're dealing with guilt. The sixth one is the one that I thought was the most interesting. Researchers have found repeatedly that guilt causes you to feel literally heavier than you are. Guilty people assess their weight as being far more in excess than it really is. If you struggle with guilt, you think you're fatter than you are. That's the bottom line. You know, we talk about being weighed down by guilt. Research shows us that people who are eaten up with guilt see themselves in, in a light that isn't even true. The, the number means something different to them. What they see in the mirror doesn't look like what the rest of us see, and it's guilt that's messing with our heads. And number seven is tied to that. Food guilt is one of the most common and difficult forms of guilt today in Western culture. And somebody said amen. Maybe it was the preacher that said that. Number eight. See how many ladies can relate to this. In our culture today, moms may be the most tormented people with guilt of anybody in the culture. All the women said amen. In past generations, moms generally were satisfied with having provided food, clothing, and shelter for their kids. But today's mothers feel so much more pressure to do everything else for their kids, far beyond what their parents and grandparents did. And the result is an overwhelming sense of guilt all the time that you didn't measure up as a mom. Any moms in the room relate to that? Number nine, the three most common guilt triggers. Number one, not always being there for your kids, your spouse, or your parents. You're not there for your family enough. Somebody needed you and you weren't there for them. Number two, saying no either at work or to your family. And number three, taking time for yourself or spending any money on yourself. Anybody relate to those? 
and number 10. This is the overarching one that pretty much just sums it up. Guilt makes us reluctant to enjoy life. We don't feel okay enjoying anything when we're plagued by guilt. It's like even if we're having fun, we immediately feel guilty for having fun. If we feel good, we immediately feel guilty for feeling good. I shouldn't feel that way. There's got to be something bad about to happen. The other shoe's about to drop. Guilt will suck the joy out of your life. And doesn't that idea stand in sharp, sharp contrast to the words of Jesus in John 10.10 when he said, I have come that they may have life and have it to the full. Guilt will rob you of that. And Jesus didn't want you to live the kind of life that's plagued by guilt, fear, and shame. I wonder how many of us today, if we could get honest, are living with guilt as a pretty constant companion or a pretty constant tormentor in life. I mean, think about the the wide array of things that we just find ourselves feeling guilty about in any normal week. We feel guilty that we haven't prayed enough that we haven't read the Bible enough, that we haven't given enough, that we haven't served enough, that we haven't done enough for our kids, that we haven't loved our spouse well enough. We feel guilty because we have a a past failure in a marriage. We feel guilty for just any and everything. We'll start feeling guilty for what other people have done. We, We just feel guilty all the time. Confession's good for the soul, so I'll make a confession. I struggle with pastor's guilt. I do. I know in my head... That if you stack together all the things that we imagine today that a pastor is supposed to be and do, that nobody lives up to it. Nobody does. And even though I know that, I carry this ongoing sense of guilt and failure that I don't measure up to all of those things. I feel like I should be a better person. I feel like there are more things that I should be doing for you as my church family. I I don't ever feel like a week goes by that I did everything that I was supposed to do for you or that I lived up to what you needed me to be. It's just the truth. That's how I feel. It's guilt. (laughs) Well, thanks. Could I just record that and just play it back all the time? But you, you can relate to that. So many of us, if you just get really honest, we just don't feel like we measure up. And so we feel guilty about that. Whenever I was um, a very young man, I was in divinity school and uh, training under an experienced pastor. Bruce Chester was his name. He was really very much of a mentor for me. He would take me out doing ministry stuff every week to just help me get my feet wet and the different things that a pastor is expected to do. And I remember one day I'm just looking me in the eye, just dead serious. He said, you just need to understand you're going to spend the rest of your life feeling like you're on a pendulum and you will always swing back and forth between two extremes. You'll always feel guilty. You'll either feel like you've served the church well this week, but you have robbed your family and you'll feel guilty about how you've robbed your family. Or you'll feel like you spent enough time with your family, but you didn't give the church what it deserved and you will spend the rest of your life feeling guilty. And I thought... Well, that's a terrible invitation to ministry right there. And tragically, there's a lot of truth in what he said. We tend to just carry around guilt over things like this. Jesus doesn't want us to live with a cloud of guilt, and we don't have to. We really can be free from this. And so I want to focus in on one particular passage of Scripture that I think speaks to our hearts and speaks to our need. And it's familiar. It's in Luke 23. You can turn there in your Bibles or you can just pull out your outlines. I've put in your outline all of the portions of Luke 23 that we're going to look at today. It's a very familiar passage if you've been in church for any length of time because this is taken from right in the heart of the matter. The crucifixion itself is taking place here. Luke, as he always does, is giving a pretty detailed picture of what's going on. And in the midst of Jesus being crucified for for our sins and for the sins of all of humanity, it says, in, beginning in verse 32, concerning the crucifixion of Jesus, that two others, criminals, were also led away with Jesus. And when they arrived at the place called the skull, they crucified him there along with the criminals, one on the right and one on the left. It's a really stark, moving picture First of all, that Jesus, of all the ways that he could be murdered, that he's crucified, but he's not just crucified alone, that he's crucified right there between 
two notorious criminals. Now, I'm, I'm not going to go in depth about this today, but it is worth remembering what crucifixion was all about. The Romans were really good at killing people. I mean, of all the things you could say good or bad about the Romans, they were experts at killing people. And crucifixion, while ultimately it ended with the death of a person, crucifixion was not just about killing somebody. There are much more efficient ways of killing someone. In fact, crucifixion was the most expensive way that Rome ever killed someone because they had to leave a detachment of at least four soldiers there the whole time someone was crucified, and crucifixion often took three or four days. It was usually a very slow process. It just so happened when they were crucifying these Jewish people outside of Jerusalem when Sabbath rolls around. You can't have naked men hanging on crosses outside of Jerusalem for the Sabbath, and so they make sure that they die very quickly on that day. But crucifixion is very much about shame and exposure and humiliation. Our our imagery, our, our artwork that depicts the crucifixion is always doctored up a little bit because we don't want to let our minds go there to what crucifixion really fully was like, and, I, and I'm not going to take you all of those places right now. But, I mean, part of what our art thankfully doesn't depict is people were almost always stripped completely naked before they were nailed to a cross. It was absolute humiliation. It was an attempt to say this person is cursed. In fact, the, the scriptures say cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree. It's the ultimate humiliation. When we try and speak of unspeakable pain today in our our language today, we'll use the word excruciating when we want to say it's just the most awful that you can imagine. Do you realize what we're saying when we call something excruciating? The, The etymology of the word ex means from or out of, and cruci, C-R-U-C-I, is literally from the cross, like crucifixion. Out of the cross is the etymology of that word. When you want to speak of the worst pain that we can imagine, we, we are saying literally it is, it is reminiscent of the pain and humiliation of the cross. Jesus is going through that for us, bearing our sin and shame, and he's doing it right there sandwiched between two criminals. We pick up in verse 39 where it says, One of the criminals hanging there began to yell insults at Jesus. Aren't you the Messiah? The Savior? Save yourself and us. Can't you just hear the sarcasm dripping from every word that he speaks? Oh, the the great Savior of the world. Why don't you save someone here today like you and me? But the other criminal answered, rebuking him. Don't you even fear God? Since we are... Since you are undergoing the same punishment, we are punished justly because we're getting back what we deserve for the things that we did. The thing I want you to notice in that, we're getting what we deserve. This is just justice. Don't insult this guy. We're in the same boat with him. This is just getting what you deserve. The striking thing about what happened on the hill outside of Jerusalem that day is that across the board the things that were happening had so little to do with what is deserved, getting what's deserved as we're going to see here. Now, I want to do a little thing with you here. You you help me out. This is audience participation time. I'm going to begin a line. I'm going to do this three different times. I'm going to start a line, and if you know the rest of it, I want you to shout it back at me, okay? Here's the first one. What goes around, right on. Your past will come back to, yes, you've made your bed, so now you've got to, right on. Every one of those lines, everybody knows, we didn't have to rehearse that. In unison, you could say it back, and they all mean the same thing. They're all saying what this dying thief was saying. What goes around, comes around. I've made my bed, now I've got a line. And my past has come back to haunt me, and I'm just getting what I deserve. He believed that, and... If he believed that that's what he deserved, then he's guilty of some bad stuff. Because let me tell you, the Romans at this time in history, now a little bit later, 
some of the the rulers of Rome became much more flippant about passing down a death sentence. But at this point in history, you had to do something pretty bad, really bad, to be crucified. I mean, if you remember the whole thing about the attempts by the Jews to have Jesus crucified, they almost didn't succeed. I mean, the Roman ruler kept saying, he hasn't done anything to deserve death. I I don't want him to be crucified because he hasn't done anything to warrant this. You didn't get crucified for being a pickpocket or a jaywalker or for being late and paying your taxes. That didn't get you nailed to a cross. You had to be a bad, bad person who had done some really despicable things. And this thief said, yep, that's us. We deserve to be where we are. And the truth be told think if we're honest most of us in that setting would have said yep he's right that's justice they did the crime now they got to do the time that's what justice looks like and something in the darker part of us feels kind of good when we see somebody else suffering when they've done something to deserve punishment isn't that the truth i know we're not going to say yeah and amen to that but we do and yet We just don't want it to apply to us. We want to get off. We see somebody else speeding by us on the highway. Immediately, I'm thinking, man, I hope there's a trooper somewhere around. I hope they nail his fanny. I want him to get a reckless driving ticket. But when I'm in a hurry, I hope there's nobody with a blue light on top anywhere close by. As I even talk about that, I am reminded of one of the dumbest nights of my entire life. I don't know, I was a freshman or a sophomore in college, driving home from Tuscaloosa back to Brundage. I'm about halfway home, it's dark, and I'm going down 82, narrow two-lane road north of Prattville, and I'm driving faster than I should be. Nobody ahead of me or behind me in sight, but a line of cars are meeting me. All I can see is headlights because it's dark. And as I am zooming past them, I realize too late, one of them is an Alabama state trooper. And I look down at my speedometer, and I'm like, oh, I'm way over the speed limit. And I do what all of us would do. I look in the rearview mirror, and I see him laying on the brakes. And I'm like, oh, he's got me. And then my brain went to a very bad place. I'm thinking, he's caught in an entire line of cars. It's a narrow two-lane road at night. It's going to take him a minute to turn around. And I know exactly where I am. At the top of this very big hill ahead of me, I remember there's a dirt road that turns off to the right. I don't know where it goes, but it's very dark. And as I'm looking in my rearview mirror, I'm thinking, I can do it. And I floor it. Now, that sounds more impressive than it is because I was driving a Nissan Pulsar, so flooring it is sort of like revving up your sewing machine. But I gave it all it had. Which wasn't a lot. I was wishing it had a whole lot more. At that point, I was wishing I drove a sexy sports car or something because it was taking me forever to get over this hill. And sure enough, he is whipping around to come get me. I cleared the top of the hill, and I'm thinking, I've got enough time. I whip in that dirt road. I'm scared to go very far because I don't know where it's going. And I know any moment he's going to top the hill, and if he sees my lights, I'm dead. So I just jam on the brakes, put on the emergency brakes so that my brake lights aren't showing to kill my lights. And I sit there, and I am in that moment realizing what an idiot I am and thinking, I just kicked up a whole cloud of dust. He's going to see what I did and turn in here, and I'm dead. I was just going to get a ticket, but tonight I'm going to get a free ride to jail. In just a moment, that state trooper flew by. Thankfully, he did not see my cloud of dust and took off down the road. And now the reality of what I've just done is sinking in, and I'm like, he's going to go around the next curve, look ahead, and see I'm not there He's going to know I took this road. He's coming back to get me. I'm going to jail. I am shaking. I'm scared to death. I'm about to wet my pants. I'm so scared. So I I won't even turn on my headlights. In the dark, I'm creeping down the hill. By the grace of God, I didn't wind up in a ditch. I get to the bottom of the hill. There's a little country church down this dirt road. Tell me there isn't some symbolism in this. I went and hid behind the church to escape the penalty for my sins. I did. I literally went and hid behind a church. I'm con- Some of you are never going to listen to me again. I, I stayed there just just scared out of my mind. And finally, I'm like, I've, I've got to go home. So I, I 
I creep out, ease back up onto 82. You know, it's 55 through there, and I'm driving like 40. I'm like super legal now. I've never committed a crime. I, so I'm creeping along, go around a couple of curves, and there's the trooper sitting beside the road with his light on. I'm like, oh, he's outsmarted me. He realized what I did. He got a good look at my car, and he's just been sitting there waiting for me. And so now I'm like trying to drive super safe, like 40 miles an hour, man. I've never committed, I've never sped in my life, and and I'm I'm dying. He's fixing to arrest me, and I, only when I get up beside him do I see. Just beyond him is a car that's pulled even further over. He flew down the road and caught the next car he could find. Apparently, I'm sure thinking it was me. Yeah, now you're really looking at me like the scumbag I am. I go by and I realize not only did I escape getting what I deserve, somebody else got my ticket. Years later, I was at a pastor's conference at the Georgia Dome in Atlanta, tens of thousands of pastors. The the pastor who was speaking was talking about the need for reconciliation, asking for and receiving forgiveness within the church and how people in different denominations hate each other and have talked bad about each other. And he gave an invitation like none I'd ever seen before. And he said, what I want you to do today is there are so many people who've held, you know, grief and awed and, and got hurt feelings. And you need, there are Baptists who need to find a Methodist and Presbyterians who need to find a Catholic and just ask for, for, for forgiveness and just confess and, and get forgiveness. So when I say go, I just want you to stand up and just start yelling for what you need say, I need a Catholic, I need a Baptist, I need a Methodist. And, and they, let me tell you, when 60,000 preachers are yelling like that, it's crazy in the Georgia. But I'm like, I don't really feel all toward anybody. I think I need a state trooper. I've got unconfessed sin. Is there an Alabama state trooper in the house? I carry guilt over this thing. Somebody else got my ticket. I wanted so badly for everybody else to get justice, but when it's my turn, I don't want what I deserve. It's universal, isn't it? It is a true story. Please don't hate me. <laughs> he goes on to say, the thief says, you and I are guilty. We deserve to die because we did wrong, but this man has done nothing wrong. And then he said, Jesus... Remember me when you begin ruling as king. I am so moved by that statement. There are a lot of people watching Jesus die between these thieves. We can only imagine what a lot of them are thinking. I mean, some of them, we know what they're thinking because they verbalize their insults toward Jesus. They have no faith in him. They think he's a phony. The people who had placed their faith in Jesus... We don't know exactly what they're thinking, but afterwards, most of them run and hide. I mean, it's hard to imagine that they're thinking, he's the real deal. He is the Son of God. He's the Messiah, the Savior of the world. It's pretty easy to imagine that a lot of them, what they had hoped and believed about Jesus, seems to be crashing and burning. And yet there's one person in that whole scene who openly declares faith that they believe that Jesus is who he said he is. And it's this thief when he says, Jesus, remember me when you begin ruling as king. What an extraordinary statement. This guy hanging there dying. He's not even a religious man. And as he looks at Jesus, somehow even through the pain and seeing what that Jesus is, is bleeding out, he's dying before his very eyes. And yet in his heart, something tells him this guy is who he said he was. He is the Messiah. He is God's chosen one. He will reign as king. I don't know how it's going to play out. Jesus, when, when you fulfill what you've said you would do, would you just remember me? How will Jesus respond to that? Will he, will he nail him? Will he tell him, no, you get what you deserve? Then Jesus said to him, I promise you, today you will be with me in paradise. I don't know that anything that's ever happened in human history could possibly match the incredible shock and apparent injustice of the sinless Son of God who is the creator of all that exists and the giver of all life, and he was murdered. He allowed his life to be taken. He laid it down. I mean, 
What else in human history can match that for just shock and disbelief? That the author of all life is murdered while humanity looks on. And yet I would contend that as shocking, as newsworthy as that is, that what happens in what we just read is right behind it in terms of shock and awe. He's dying next to notorious criminals. And what we might expect Jesus to say in moments like this that he didn't say in response to the thief is, No, dude, you have done way too much. You have always driven me crazy. You're getting what you deserve. I'm sorry, but you're a little late. You should have, you should have downloaded more of my sermons when you had the chance. But you're just a day late and a dollar short. I'm sorry. You didn't turn. You're going to burn. He didn't say any of those things. What he did say absolutely shocks us. And the reason that it shocks us is because this man never had the opportunity to turn over a new leaf. He never started going to church. He didn't get baptized. He didn't give any money. He didn't help anybody. He didn't witness to anyone. He didn't give any evidence in terms of a new lifestyle that something had happened in him. He never even had time to do any of those things. And yet to him, Jesus said, I promise you. You're going to be in paradise with me. He was given forgiveness, a place in the family of God, and eternal life all in a moment of time. He's going to be dead the same afternoon that, that he experiences this, and he never does anything to deserve it. I said what happened on that hill had nothing to do with what's deserved. It's true on two accounts. Jesus never deserved any of the pain and humiliation that he suffered. And this dying thief never, never did anything to deserve or receive the good things that were lavished on him. Because God isn't fair. And life isn't all about just getting what you deserve. And that's very good news for you and me. It's all kinds of things that aren't fair. It's not fair that I stand up here as your preacher today. If I got what was fair, I wouldn't even belong to God. I wouldn't be forgiven, and I certainly wouldn't be your pastor. There's a lot in life that's not fair. So here's the, the key question. How do you avoid the severe justice of God? I mean, do, do you recognize how fierce the anger and justice of God can be and are. Do you ever just think about that? I bet you don't spend a lot of time thinking about it because it's too disturbing. Because we can read the Old Testament. We, that's part of why it's there. It's for us to recognize that the justice of a holy God demands things that we don't want to think about. You know, the law spells out for so many different things, some of them seemingly very simple to us, that the punishment is death, 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 stone them to death. I mean, a child who is disobedient to their parents, do you know what the penalty was? Stone them to death. And we go, oh my goodness, God said to do that? Yep. Why would he say that? Because we need to catch a glimpse of the weight of our sin and what justice would look like. That sin deserves death. So the key question is, how in the world do we escape the justice of God, the fierce wrath of God? It's not complicated, and the scriptures aren't foggy on this at all. So in just the next few minutes, I want to close out by sharing with you four key truths about this. And the first one that everything hinges on is this. It's simply that faith in Jesus leads to our forgiveness and makes us a part of God's family. John summed it up this way about Jesus in John 1.12. But to all who believed in him and accepted him, he gave the right to become the children of God. So much packed in one little sentence. The, the two operative words, believed and accepted. The wrath of God isn't saved up for the children of God. So you want to be a child of God. 
But to be a child of God, he says, two things happen. You got to believe and you got to accept. You got to believe the truth about Jesus. You can't just believe anything that you want to believe. You can't, you can't just pick some religion and chase after it and get there. No. You've you got to believe in Jesus, the sinless Son of God, the creator of the world, died on a cross accepting the pain and punishment that our sins deserved. All our guilt, shame, and punishment on him. God accepted that and raised him from the dead. You've got to believe it. Now, that doesn't mean that you can't ever have doubts. It doesn't mean that you can't ever ask questions. It doesn't mean you can't ever have moments where you struggle with that just seeming too good to be true, too simple to do the trick. It doesn't mean that you can't have those because most of us do. But when it's all said and done, you have to choose to believe that. But there's a step beyond that. You've got to believe and accept I mean, I believe the truth about a lot of people. I, I believe Hitler was a real person. I believe he led the Third Reich. I believe he was a powerful leader. I believe he was an incredibly wicked, perverse man. It doesn't save me. I'm just believing the truth about him. It's mental assent to the facts. There are people who don't believe, by the way, that he did the things that he did. Crazy. It's not enough just to believe that Jesus did what he did. He says you also have to accept him. That means that you allow him to come in and make a difference in your life. You have to accept that he has actually accomplished what he set out to do. That he has paid for your sins. That he has done everything necessary to make you right with God. And you now accept his gift of forgiveness. And you accept him in your life. Now look out. If you do that, he didn't come in just to be your buddy. What did the thief say about Jesus? When you reign as king, I want to tell you, he is that wherever he goes. He is Lord and king. And when you accept him into your life, you don't just get a savior, you get a Lord. You get a king. You get one who gets to be in charge. And he rearranges things. He begins to set things back in order. And sometimes that's uncomfortable. Because we like wickedness more than we like righteousness many times, don't we? Yeah, I know that doesn't get an amen either, but it's true. Here's the thing that I want you to see really clearly in your mind's eye. Here's what Jesus did say. In Matthew 25, Jesus spoke of the day that is to come when he will judge all of humanity. You're going to be there, I'm going to be there. Everyone who has ever lived will be assembled in one place at one point in time before the judgment seat of Jesus. And he says that all of humanity will be split into two groups. Now here's what I want you to recognize about these two groups. One's going to be larger than the other. This is very clear from what Jesus said in the Sermon on the Mount. The larger group is going to get exactly what they deserve. I don't mean that as a harsh or condemning statement. It's just a fact. Go back and read the closing paragraph of Revelation 20. It's a description of what happens at this point in time. You know how we know that the larger group is going to get exactly what they deserve? Because what's revealed to John in Revelation is that the books of works will be opened. And all of the deeds of everyone in this larger camp are going to be exposed, good and bad, and then they will receive exactly what is due them for what they've done in life. With the net effect that it's going to be bad news for everybody in that camp. Not to an equal degree. There will be greater and lesser punishments, but the severe justice of God will be poured out on that whole massive group of people. They will get what they deserve. But there is a second group. It's the sheep. Absolutely will not get what they deserve. I mean, can we all agree? What we deserve is death, separation from God, and suffering because of our sins. That is what we deserve. Some of us struggle with that, but, but that is the reality of the matter. 
And no one in this other group will get that. Which sure begs an important question, doesn't it? What is it that determines who's in this group and who's in that group? And it's crazy the conclusions that we'll come to about that. That we'll think, oh, this must be the really good people. No, there'll be good people in both groups. This must be the really religious crowd that went to church a lot. No, there will be lots of people who went to church and were super religious in both crowds. These must have been the people who gave away a lot of money. There will be a lot of wonderful philanthropists over here. There's one defining issue that determines whether you're in the group that does not get what they deserve or you're in the group that gets exactly what they deserve. And it is personal trust in Jesus that leads to the forgiveness of sins and acceptance into the family of God. And that is it. And when you're there, three things trump the wrath of God. When you're counted among those who are forgiven, three specific things will trump the wrath of God. And they are the mercy of God, the grace of God, and the love of God. Now I want to say a quick word about all three of those. Consider the mercy of grace and love of God and how they will for us in the family of God trump the wrath of God. First of all, God's mercy keeps us from receiving any of the punishment that we deserve. Somebody say amen. Oh, thank you. The mercy of God means that you get none of the punishment that you deserve. We're not just talking about in eternity. We're talking about in this life. And I know some people listening online, some people in the room, do not believe what I'm saying. It has been so drilled into us that you're going to have to, to pay when you've screwed up, that there are certain things that God makes sure that you're going to suffer for. And the mercy of God means you don't receive any of the punishment we, that we deserve. Ephesians 2 says this. In the past, all of us. I want you to point your finger in a circle all the way around the room and say, all of us. In the past, all of us lived like that, trying to please our sinful selves. Can you relate? Yeah, we all did it. We did all the things that our bodies and minds wanted. Like everyone else in the world, we deserved to suffer God's anger. There's that word, deserved. We deserve to suffer God's anger just because of the way we were. Now the good news. But God is rich in what? Oh, he's rich in mercy. And he loved us very much. We were spiritually dead because all that we had done against him, but he gave us new life together with Christ. God's mercy is good news if we're God's children. Because it means that there is no wrath, there is no punishment waiting in this life or in the next. Mercy means you don't get punished, period. The second thing that, that's critical is the grace of God. God's grace ensures that we get all the good that we need but don't deserve. You see how those two things go together? Mercy ensures that I don't get all that I do deserve, and grace ensures that I do get all the good that I don't deserve. It's not about what you deserve. Ephesians 2 goes on to say, I mean that you have been saved by grace. Everybody say, by grace. How do you get saved by grace? By being good? By going to church? By giving more? No, you get saved by grace because you because you believe, trust is the same word in Greek, because you believed, you did not save yourselves, it was a gift from God, you were not saved by the things that you have done, so there is nothing to boast about. God made us what we are. We're saved, you know, when we use the word saved, when we come to faith in Christ, as, as good evangelicals we say, you got saved, and that's a good word for it. We used to think of that in terms of what you got saved from. You missed the wrath of God. You missed hell. But you also got saved to a lot more than what you got saved from. That is the grace of God. Think about what you got saved to. 
You got saved to be a son of God, a daughter of God, and you got all the rights of being a child of God. That means you now bear the name of God, that you now bear the authority that Jesus carried. What you see in the scriptures that's true of Jesus now is true of you. You walk with the authority that Jesus had, authority over sickness, authority over the demonic. You walk with this incredible position in the world that when you speak in faith, it's like Jesus said it. Wow. You now have an inheritance as the sons and daughters of God. You are joint heirs with Jesus. What Jesus inherits, you inherit. When when you pray... I mean, let's get honest about this. Half the time, when half of us pray, it's like we're going we're gonna to lob some stuff up there. Just keep lobbing up there. It's like we're just throwing things against the wall and hoping something's going to stick at some point. We're going to get lucky in one of these times, just like a blind hog looking for an acre, and we're going to find one every now and then. You know, We're going to keep throwing things at God and just hope that one of these times he's going to answer one. Because, I mean, what do we deserve to get back from God? I'm just a sinful nobody. Why should I expect God to answer my prayers? I mean, here's like the, the saddest expression of that. If it's a really big one, let's call a preacher and get him to pray for it. Maybe he can lob one a little harder. Are you kidding? Do you think that God answers your prayers because you deserve it? If you want to be in a deserving relationship with God, you've got to shift from the sheep camp to the goat camp because it's the goats that are in a deserving relationship with God. Sheep operate on the basis of grace because God's sheep are his children and they don't get things because they deserve them they get them because God has declared them and made them to be the sons and daughters of God so when you cry out to God for something in faith it's as if Jesus is asking the father for it. it's not this little mamby bamby oh Please, I mean, God, I know I don't deserve it, but maybe you could, if it be thy will. I think me and the preacher are in agreement, if it be thy will. No! Pray like Jesus would pray. Father, you are good, and you are able, and I believe. And expect God to respond. You weren't just saved from something. You were saved to something and to be made into somebody. I think so many times we walk around, we're so overwhelmed by guilt. It's like, I don't know that I could do much for God, but maybe somehow he could get a little bit of glory through my life. You are Jesus made over. It is Christ in you, the hope of glory that is changing the world. It doesn't mean you get a big head. It just means we get a healthy picture of what God is making us to be. And we stop living under the cloud of shame and guilt and fear because we've been saved to become somebody. Second Peter 1.3 says Jesus has the power of God. Who believes that Jesus has the power of God? Yes and amen. And His power has given us Everything. Everybody say, given us everything. His power has given us everything we need to live a life devoted to God. And we have these things because, because what? Because we know Him. Hadn't you been told all your life, it's all about who you know? It's about who you know. Well, that's true. It is about who you know. It's not about what you've done. It's about who you know. You have all that you need for life and godliness through Him, because you know Him, the grace of God gains you all of these things that we don't deserve. And then the final thing we'll say is this. God's love, he said it's His mercy, His grace, and His love. God's love ensures that all of our failures are forgotten and never used against us. Somebody say hallelujah. Hallelujah. Three verses that I want to share with, with you about that. Psalm 103, 10 through 12. We sinned against him, but he didn't give us the what? The punishment we deserved. He didn't give it. He's not going to give it. His love for his followers is as high above us. As heaven is above the earth. I remember with my, my daughters when they were little girls, and we'd, we'd do the whole thing. I love you. I love you so much. And you'd always have to trump each other. 
I love you to the moon. I love you to Pluto and back. Well, I love you to heaven and back. I mean, as as the psalmist is writing this, he's trying to come up with the ultimate thing. His love for us is all the way, it's up there. It's as high as the heavens. And he has taken our sins as far away from us as as over there to over there, as far as the east is from the west. His love, whoo, it's up there. Our sins, it's whew, it's as far from us as, as you can get. Don't you love it? That is the love of God for you. Oh, we're not done. Hear God himself speak to this. Isaiah 43. Oh, this is so good. I am the one who wipes away all your sins. Say those three words with me. All your sins. I am the one who wipes away all your sins. Here's the line I don't want you to forget for the rest of your life. I do this to please myself. Oh my goodness. I wipe away the stain of every screw-up, every rotten, selfish decision you've ever made. And I don't do it because I would said, well, I said I love the whole world, so I guess i got to love Stone, too. I guess i got to love Vicky over here. i got to love Erica, too. Just, I guess i got to wipe your sins. No, it's not that at all. He says, it gives me pleasure to wipe the slate clean so that all that remains is the image of Jesus, the image of Jesus, the image of Jesus, the image of Jesus. It gives me great pleasure. And I will not remember your sins. That's incredible. The all-knowing God will never remember your sins. He goes on to say in Jeremiah 31, which is one of the three or four most important chapters in all the Old Testament, God says, I will forgive their wickedness, and I will never again remember their sins. For so many of us, somebody, somewhere, somehow along the line convinced us that there are some things that are just so bad that God can't let them go. So we've got this little hang-up in our minds. The grace of God is wonderful. The forgiveness of God is great. I still get to go to heaven. But I killed a baby. I had an abortion. And there's no way that God could let that go unpunished, at least not in this lifetime. I got a divorce. I lied. I stole. I was unfaithful. There's no way that God could leave that unpunished. It's like somewhere along the way, somebody deposited this lie deep inside of us. That I, 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 believe, I believe I get to go to heaven. I believe that in heaven, I'll be stainless and I'll look like Jesus. But meanwhile, here on earth, if God is a just judge... Somewhere down the line, if I did any of these big sins, there's going to have to be some point in time where I've got to pay the piper, where I've got to suffer some kind of punishment. And I want to tell you, if you get punished when you have trusted Christ and been forgiven, and you get punished by God for any of that, that makes God a liar. And you can count on this. God is truth, and he never lies. Anybody who would ever suggest that anything that you've done in the past or anything that you'll do in the future, if you're a child of God, that it's going to be punished by God, that's just grounded in terrible theology. It's not grounded in the truth of what Jesus said or what God the Father said. Because the Father says of his children that we are forgiven and that it has given him great pleasure to forgive us, to wipe the slate clean, and to never, ever remember our sins again. Some of us have lived so long under a cloud of guilt. Some of us have had an alarm clock where all we can do is hit the snooze button to momentarily silence the guilt 
and the pain and the shame over our worst failures from the past. So afraid of what God must think. So afraid of of what our standing with God could be. So imagining that we're the stepchildren of God. I want to tell you, God doesn't have any stepchildren or grandchildren. He just has sons and daughters and he loves them all. And only one thing gets you from being in that group that gets what they deserve to the group that gets all that they don't deserve. And that is simply placing your faith in the crucified and risen Jesus. I'm going to ask you two simple questions as we conclude. First of all, have you done that simple thing? It's pointless to think you're going to work toward getting there. Works will never get you there. It's all of grace. It's all about a gift that you receive. Have you made that choice? You don't have to get all your questions answered to take that simple step of faith. Jesus said a child can do it. He said we have to become like children to simply receive the forgiveness of God. And the second question is, if you've already done that, is there an issue of guilt, fear, or shame that has still lingered in your life? Some sense of, but I've just got this huge screw-up from the past that just, I can't get it out of my head. I can't stop thinking about it. It just haunts me that you need the grace of God to touch you today and to free you from that lingering memory and sense of guilt and shame over that. Because I want to tell you, you can rest assured God wants to give you that gift today. He wants to redeem you and free you from bondage to that shame. Would you join me as we turn to him together in prayer right now? If you're watching and listening online, we need not worry about distance or time here. God is able and he's He's working right there where you are. Would you join me as we bow to him together in prayer? God, we say with one voice, thank you. Thank you for your love, for your mercy and your grace. Thank you for the gift of your son, our Lord Jesus, and for all that he purchased for us with his passion, his death, and his resurrection. God, we we long to be right with you. We thank you so much that you call us to be your sons and daughters. Would you help us to respond in simple faith to you? I believe that there are people in the room and watching and listening online that that need to make an initial step of, of faith, trusting Christ and receiving the forgiveness of God. I want to invite you to do that right now, but I'm going to invite the entire church family as a declaration of faith right now to do something out loud with me. I'm about to just line by line pray a simple prayer of faith. And I just want to invite every believer in the room and everyone who is ready to step across that line as well to become a follower of Christ to simply pray line after line with me this simple prayer. You just say it aloud. Lord Jesus. I need you. I believe in you. You died on the cross and you paid for my sin. I'm asking for your forgiveness and I'm choosing to trust you. Come into my life. Save me. Change me and make me yours. Thank you for loving me. Thank you for giving me what I don't deserve. In Jesus' name, amen. Father, thank you for hearing and answering our prayers today. And we pray now for many believers who have carried a sense of guilt and shame, who carry a a memory of failure that has just been on auto replay. We pray today for an outpouring of grace that would just destroy that tape, that would just end that replay. We ask you, God, as people are holding specific issues, specific failures from their past, that they've just been stuck in that thing. Jesus, we can't do this. 
we can't fix this. We're praying today. We, we beg you for an outpouring of grace here today. I don't want anybody looking around in this moment. But if today you need a touch from God to, to just erase a memory, to lift a sense of, of shame or guilt, would you just lift a hand and say, I want that grace today. I want to be touched. I want to be freed from that. Around this room, pour out grace. Lord Jesus, break bondages. Release us from those memories. Let grace reign in this place. Lord Jesus, we receive your forgiveness. Thank you for the promise that these things will never be brought up, mentioned, or remembered again because of your great love. Thank you. We receive this and we pray it in your powerful name, Lord Jesus. And all of God's people said, Amen and Amen.